0: The Pinball Network is online, launching Pinball Innovators and Makers Podcast.
1: Hi, and welcome to the Pinball Podcast focused on the innovators and makers who are crafting homebrew, custom, and re pinball machines, the technology that makes these personal projects possible, and the companies helping with these journeys. Custom pinballs are a deeply personal and technically challenging undertaking, requiring time, money, knowledge, and most importantly, the desire to make it happen. I'm Dan Rosenstein, your host. Join me and let's go under the play field and see what's needed to make a custom pinball possible. Hello, pinball makers and innovators. It's episode 11, and we have the great maker of custom artistic pinball machines that break the norms of pinball design. Welcome to the show, Tanner Petsch. Why don't you start with your pinball origin story?
0: Yeah, sure. So that's uh, a little bit of a roundabout story. So it kind of starts about four years ago when I went to a graduate program for art. Um, but it actually starts about nine years ago when I was an undergrad. Uh, when I was a sophomore in undergrad, I was studying fine art. And uh, we had this sophomore project that was, you know, something he worked on for an entire semester that, uh, just to do, you know, kind of an uh, independent project. And so in my kind of hubris as a young undergrad, I thought that I could build a pinball machine and, you know, make it work within the three or four months of the semester. Uh, and that was obviously not true, but it was something that I got further along with than I would have thought looking back on it. And it kind of uh, planted the idea for later on down the line.
1: So you um, you started your pinball journey yeah. um, because you were in art school. You didn't have any pinball experience before then. Or did you play pinballs like growing up or anything like that?
0: No. So uh, I went to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and there's this uh, arcade called Pinball Pete's that's absolutely incredible. I spent many, uh, many an hour there as an undergrad. Um, but pinball wasn't something I really took that seriously until I started building machines a couple of years ago. Like I would play it on a regular basis, but I was not good at all, and it wasn't something that I dedicated that much time to. It was more of the sort of thing where, um, I've always been interested in game design and I've also always been interested in like new media and physical computing and like actual things that you can kind of touch and interact with. Uh, and so it was at, when I was at pinball Pete's at one point that I was like, Hey, maybe I can build one of these things. (laughs) Um, so, you know, um, if I tried that, if I was in that position now, I may have actually been able to do it. Cause now you have like fast pinball and mission pinball and all these really incredible resources that don't make it easy, but make it a lot more attainable to be able to build your own games. Um, it's really so, incredible. What's out there.
1: So you were in art school. You're, you were a sophomore, yeah. you know, you're, you're playing at pinball Pete's. You're like, I think yep. I can go build a, build a <laughs> pinball machine. And so, um, and, and it's, it's, it's pretty cool that you're, um, that your love of uh, physical computing interfaces um, is what is what drew you into this and and, and physical sure. art. And so, can you can you tell tell the listener and me how you connected your art interests and your pinball interests and ended up starting to build a build a pinball machine?
0: Yeah. So, like I mentioned, I've always kind of been interested in new media, which is kind of a catch-all term for basically any art that involves technology in one way or another. So kind of programmatic art and physical art and all that kind of stuff are things that I've always, you know, had a, had a couple of fingers in. Um, and so after grad school, I got a graphic design job that was fine, but was kind of the right job for the wrong person. And so <laughs> at some point with that, uh, a former professor of mine at the U of M reached out that he had moved to this program at the University at Buffalo in New York. Um, And he thought I might be interested in the grad program there because it was a fully funded program. And it was kind of a weirdo program where you're not going for like painting or, you know, sculpture or something. You kind of go to do, you know, whatever you're doing. And usually that's something weird based on uh, the cohort that I had. Uh, And so I went to that program and going into it, I wanted to have kind of an overarching project where, uh, it would be one thing I'd be working on the whole time rather than, you know, say making, you know, dozens of paintings and then having a show at the end of just, you know, those paintings or kind of doing things here or there. I wanted something a little more cohesive. And so I thought about returning to the pinball project. Cause it was one of those things where, um, I tried it, you know, at that point when I was a sophomore and then it didn't get that far, although I still have the cabinet that I made, um in the play field for that somewhere it's awful like it's not worth actually completing as a game um but i was thinking back to that and thought that that might be kind of something interesting to pursue with that program um and being the person that i am i decided not to build one game but that i wanted to build an entire arcade so that was uh um what i pursued while i was there which ended up being kind of four and a half games you know about that but uh and that put me onto the path to today, where you know I'm still making games and active in the homebrew scene and whatnot.
1: So Tanner, um, you know, you sent me a a doc. You know, I had asked, do you have any any sure. any uh, uh, e- uh, info that you could share? And you put together this like amazing 13 page document that covers sure. all of the machines, and it was it was great ramp up for me. And my big summary is that like your games are just beautiful works of art and no, like the man, fact you that know, you you, that. you built them through a through a fine art program is mm-hmm. is pretty amazing um you know, you you talk about exploring the unexplored design space in pinball. Those were the words you use to describe kind of. I, I don't know if I want to call it your thesis of of the work that you did, but like as you said, you wanted to have a a central theme, and and that is it: exploring the unexplored design space in pinball. So, um, why don't why don't you tell the listener about that design philosophy? The and and what is the unexplored design space in pinball for you?
0: Sure. So, um. Just to start off, one thing I can say is that uh, a big part of my journey in making games has been independently rediscovering why everything in pinball is done the way it is. Um, so there's a lot of things that I tried to do differently for no reason other than I thought I could do something different. And I was like, oh, that's why, you know, <laughs> um, well, the, half the things in a pinball machine are that way for very good reasons. Um but So I was impressed in kind of this idea of pinball machines that existed outside of kind of what you expect from pinball, just because uh, since pinball is a physical medium, um, there's really no reason that it has to be, you know, the sort of standard size where it's 20 and a quarter inches wide and, you know, four feet deep and um, the Italian bottom and all these kind of conventions that you associate with pinball are really only that way do until you know kind of a combination of uh practicality and kind of commercial manufacturing concerns and so i was interested in kind of exploring pinball in a similar way to how with video games you have kind of art games that are you know um both in the sense that like you know games you can uh, play at home and also games that you play in a gallery that kind of Seek to do one thing that isn't what you would expect from, you know, a triple A game or something that you find just in the mainstream. They kind of push at the boundaries of the medium, and I was interested in kind of exploring pinball in a similar way. And can so, you
1: an, can yeah. you give an example of some of those uh, arc- arcade games that might, you know, not be a triple A title but push the push the boundary of, of the media?
0: yeah so um for instance with video games there's this artist named pippin bar who uh is really fascinating um but he has a series of games called uh oh what are they called exactly they're like chess two and chess three where they are these collections that are chess but they're all kind of you know messed up where uh the pieces do weird things or like um There's a chess roguelike that he made where so it's like different and your aim is to beat your opponent and progress through the game but like, the way that it uh, interfaces with chess is different for it with each level. Uh, And so you think of chess as the super rigid defined thing, but it's taking those conventions of you know the pieces you have and how they move, and then using that in all kinds of really fascinating ways. Um, where, you know, that's the sort of thing that you're not going to get from say, you know, Nintendo or rockstar, like these super big companies that are, uh, making something a little more, um, kind of mainstream, but it's like within that realm of video games that, uh, is challenging kind of what you think of chess while still being chess and still being entertaining. Um, and there's, you know, a long history of that sort of thing, but that's one that comes to mind just, uh off the top of my head.
1: No, it's it's it, it's a fantastic example. Thank you for taking me and <laughs> the listener there. Um so you, you know you you so so as you progress um, to look at unexplored design spaces and, you know, there are things that it ends up that the pinball companies did and did for practical reasons. Like one of them sure. being, you know, the width of the machine can only be so big in order to get it through standard size doors as, sure. as, as an example, <laughs> what are, what are some places where w- without going into the specific machines, which I do want to do, what are some places yeah. where you explored the unexplored design space and found something interesting or something unique that, um, that that you hadn't seen before and that you think mm-hmm. can be carried forward
0: yeah so all of my games are non-standard sizes whether that's you know the length the width the uh, um all the different aspects of what the game is and i'm not against making a standard game at some point um i've been cooking up a design for a little while that's going to be kind of a wedgehead throwback that's going to be based on the uh, comic Nancy by Ernie Bushmiller (laughs) um, that I think is going to be a normal size. Um, But it's kind of the sort of uh, thing where as long as I'm making games for myself, I'm not super interested in making just a regular game, quote unquote. Um, And so all the games I've made so far weird in the sizes that they are, and then weird for other reasons as well. But yeah,
1: Tanner, it's interesting you say that. Um, I don't know if you've seen like these. The every so often on pinball enthusiasts, somebody will post, "Hey, I went to 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 OpenAI or I went to uh, Dolly, and I asked it to generate Mm -hmm. pinball machines, and it generated these like weird pinball machines." And I looked through years, and I don't mean this in in an insulting (laughs) way at all, but I was like, "Wow, this is like a true, real manifestation of kind of what what AI has been has been generating." But as I looked at each one, I was like this is brilliant. There's, there's this like combination of artistic, like, like simplicity and depth and storytelling with each one that, that popped out. And I was, I was absolutely amazed yet. They do kind of look weird because they're not the conventional pinball machine. So, so sure. let's start with your first Prometheus. Why don't, why don't you yeah. tell us about what it is um, and and what you did with it?
0: Yeah, so Prometheus is uh, still probably my favorite game aesthetically that I've made. uh, Not to toot my own horn, but that game (laughs) looks great. I'm a big fan of that one. Um, But so Prometheus is not super weird comparatively to some of the other games I've made. It was the first one I made, and I wanted to do something simple where, you know, I could kind of get it made and get it done and then move on to more complex projects. So it's the standard width of uh, a game, but it's like two-thirds the depth. It's a fairly short game, but then it's also super tall. So it gives this kind of weird, um, almost uncanny effect where, you know, it's a pinball machine. It's very recognizable as that, but you walk up to it and it's not what you're familiar with as far as interacting with that.
1: Tanner, I Um, will say looking at the picture, the back box is as tall as the cabinet is long.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's... I, you know, I kind of, um, it's weird thinking back. Cause I think the Genesis of that was that uh, I was thinking about kind of some different forms of Greek art where, you know, you have the big frescoes where it's all these different kind of images that tell a story. And I wanted to do something a little bit similar with that, where there's not a single back glass in this game. There's two, and then there's a couple of other graphics as well. Um, And so I wanted to, you know, kind of play upon that. And if I were to redo it at this point, I would do it a fair bit differently from that. But that was kind of the thought behind it. Um, But then as far as the game itself goes, it's based on the Greek myth of Prometheus, who Prometheus was a titan who stole fire from the gods. And so as punishment, he was chained up to a rock uh, and an eagle would come and eat his liver every night. And then it would regrow and happen indefinitely. And so in the game, you play as the eagle that eats Prometheus's liver. And so all there is in this game is there's one bank of four drop targets and, uh, completing that uh, bank takes a bite from the liver and it takes four bites to eat the liver. And that's all you do over and over until, you know, you either lose the ball or you get bored, um, and you get one ball per game on this game. And then in addition to that gameplay, something that's a little bit different about this one is that you don't score per game, but instead it's a cumulative score of, you know, all the livers that have ever been eaten as long as this game has been around. Um, So like when I first showed it, you know, it was at zero and it would get up to like a hundred maybe. And then, you know, in 10 years, if I show this somewhere, it'll be, you know, in the thousands and kind of some of these ideas around kind of collective, uh Um, well, what's the word I want to use? It's been a while since I've thought about some of the theoretical thought behind some of these games, but kind of uh, collective culpability. So instead of, you know, getting your own high score, you're contributing to, you know, all the livers that have ever been eaten from Prometheus, uh, and get that experience as part of, you know, all everyone being the eagle rather than just, you know, individually experiencing it.
1: And, and just like Prometheus, as long as the game, you know, continues to be shown and played, it will, it will, it will go on forever, um, which is, which is amazing. Um,
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it's one too, that it's kind of interesting because I made it to be super simple just because I wanted it to be, you would have this very specific experience and then get all the game had to offer through that. And so, like I said, there's only one thing to do, which is a bank of four drop targets. Um, but as time has gone on, I've thought a lot about um, redesigning that game just because um, there's kind of uh, an interesting trade off between having a very specific singular experience with something and then how fun or interesting that thing is to interact with. Um, You get that with art games a lot where, you know, if it's in a gallery, especially you want it to be where the person can get the entire experience associated with that without having to spend, you know, um, a lot of time with it just because they don't get that time. But I don't think Prometheus is especially fun besides the novelty of just interacting with it and it being weird. And so at some point I do want to redesign it to be, something that you know is still very singularly focused but is more pleasant to interact with and kind of my thoughts towards that are having like you know six single drop targets or something and then having random um groups of four pop up so that it's you know kind of different or more interesting to shoot for things but um that's a little off topic anyway
1: so so so, Tanner. This was your 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 first foray into into yeah. a full pinball machine, and you know you're you're coming from an art background. You've clearly got 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 a head that understands like mechanical and 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 how things look and how things feel and tactile uh, mm-hmm. uh, aspects of it. Um, where uh, so, so two 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 joint questions. Um, where did you learn the electronics and electrical aspects to? make the game possible, starting with Prometheus or even, even earlier. And what did you end up using on Prometheus for, for Mm -hmm. learning, you know, coding, electronic software, the part that's not necessarily common in fine art, or maybe is more common in the last 15 years than before.
0: Sure. So all the way back in undergrad, uh, I had this professor named Matt Kenyon, who's a really fantastic artist uh, who, you know, does all kinds of weird new media work. And he was actually the one who went to uh, the grad program at Buffalo that invited me to go study there. So he's someone I've known and been friends with for a long time. And I initially learned how to use an Arduino from him all those mm-hmm. years back in undergrad. And uh, when I first started with Prometheus, I tried really hard to make it work with an Arduino. Um, but there was a lot I didn't understand at the time about interacting with kind of high voltage uh circuit like you know all the solenoids and all the different things and it has worked before but it's never worked particularly well so like originally i was just using arduino and then the arduino programming language and then uh, i haven't had time to quite yet but at some point i actually have a cobra pin now um that i'm gonna stick in there just because you know it's a game that has like five coils and like six switches or something like that. So it doesn't necessarily need a fast system, which is what I use for the more complex machines I have. Mm -hmm. Um, But at some point I'm going to get it running here, actually off of, you know, a real control system and mission pinball, just so it functions the way it should better than it does now.
1: So in starting with that, that, that's awesome. That you started with an Arduino. Um, Yeah. (laughs) In starting with an Arduino and and starting with, with wiring their, their programming language, uh, how did you like learn about pinball mechanisms like solenoids, like flippers, like um, like ball launchers, etc.? Et where where did that knowledge come from?
0: Sure. So, um, all the way back when I started as a sophomore, or a sophomore on that project, um, a relative of mine actually had a gorgar that was super like junky, like it was you know filled with mice, and it was it makes me a little sad looking back that i tore it apart but it also i don't necessarily know if it could have been saved (laughs) um so i've had i like i figured out the physical aspect of all those parts back then and i still um pull parts that i pulled from that machine um once in a while and i'm still going to use that magnet at some point um but so the physical aspect of how those mechanisms work is a lot more intuitive to me. And especially since I was exposed to those a lot earlier than some of the other stuff um, as compared to, you know, some of the stuff that came later, that was a little more difficult to grasp. And it's the sort of thing where now at this point, like 70% of the parts I use, I order new either from pinball life or Marco. Um, but I, um, God, was that three years ago? Uh, I bought like five play fields off of someone that I still pull parts from as well. So it's a sort of thing where uh, actually having the parts in situation, being able to examine them helped a lot when I was getting started. Um, and then it's kind of funny because I work as a tech once in a while now. Uh, usually someone hears that I know about pinball machines. It's like, <laughs> hey, will you repair my machine in my basement? Um, but it's kind of funny because I, started building machines and then repaired machines after that having the knowledge of how they work from building them so it's kind of a funny backwards way of getting into repair work
1: but T- tanner no, nobody's story is a replica of somebody else's but i think it's reasonable to say that your entry and the order of things that you did is definitely not a traditional way of doing it and it's completely impressive and exciting to be talking to you sure. about it um, the I, I did have a question about Prometheus before before we move on. I noticed that the flipper sure. arrangement, the flippers are at a very steep angle um that game.
0: Yeah, and so I, yeah. that that game has uh, two inch flippers now, so they're at a normal um a normal angle. But what had happened was I did kind of a last minute adjustment of the play field where I moved the flippers closer together, but I didn't realize that would make them too close with three inch flippers that the ball couldn't actually drain through the flippers. Um, so at the time that picture was taken, when I was first showing that game, um, that was the solution I had so that it would function closer to how it should, even though, you know, it's not, uh, ideal. Um, so eventually at some point I learned that two inch flippers existed for one thing. And so I ordered a couple of uh, yellow ones from Marco, I think, and stuck them in. And now it looks a lot more like a normal game, but, uh, yeah, no, it was you know, um, and that's happened with a lot of the games I've made. Where like I'll make a modification to something without fully thinking it through, and then you know have to deal with the consequences of that. <laughs> um, at this point, I'm a lot better about not necessarily making those mistakes, but at least along the way, that happened uh, a fair amount. <laughs> cool. So,
1: so let's move to to your next machine, Sinkhole. Why don't sure. Why don't you tell the listener about that?
0: Sure. So that's a game that uh, has a couple of things going on. So the first thing is that it's a wood rail throwback. Um, So one thing is that I'm a woodworker. I make a lot of uh, furniture and, you know, do a lot of fine wood projects like that. And so I did want to combine that aspect with the pinball project, just because I was making all these games and they're all, you know, um fully digital fabrication where you know I design it up I'd cut it out on the CNC put it together and there wasn't a lot of room for that kind of handwork that I really enjoy and so I thought that it would be fun to do you know a wood rail style game to be able to incorporate that and you know um do some different things stylistically uh like one thing as well is that the cabinet art um is a lot more complex than you find of games of that era, but it was a stencil process where, you know, it's uh, two colors plus the color of the cabinet. And um, I use some limitations from how they did, you know, that kind of artwork and aesthetically of games of that era, but then dropped the things I was less interested in. And then the other thing about that game that's probably even more noticeable is that uh, it's a little hard to tell from some photos, but it actually tilts downwards away from you, so you play it backwards. Um, it's a little bit like the uh, lower playfield in uh, Black Hole or uh, Haunted House, where um, it plays opposite from you. And so uh, I combined the, that idea with the woodrail idea just because as I was first tinkering with it, uh, a more complex game, the so- line of sight you had didn't really work out with a multi-level game. So doing kind of a simpler style of game along with, you know, being backwards kind of ended up making sense. Um, And then it's also a little hard to tell from the photos, but this is actually a fairly skinny game. It's only, I think, 18 or 17 inches wide. So it's um, only a couple inches thinner, but you can feel it when you're playing it, that it's kind of, you know... um, different in that way and then it's also a little bit longer than a typical game as well but uh
1: there's a thing that i used to do when i was a little kid when i'd walk up to pinball machines and i've seen plenty of little kids do this (laughs) when they come up to my machines or at shows and like you know i would i would go and trace kind of like the the metal work or the the ball paths and like get a very kinetic feel even if i wasn't you know like pretending that i was the ball And I will say, when I saw Sinkhole, I caught myself doing the same thing, and I haven't (laughs) done that for years. Like there was, there was something about the artwork and the pattern that was like, like therapeutic, and I was just like, I was mesmerized by wanting to follow the ball path, and and maybe it was, it was as simple as I knew that this thing looked like a pinball machine. But I started mm-hmm. to see things like the flippers being in because it goes downwards away. The flippers were at the top of the play field, although it's actually the bottom. Um, yeah. And then like the the way that the the ball launch comes out is actually to the player and back because it goes to the bo- traditional bottom of the cabinet. And I think it was mm-hmm. like kind of that that inversion that actually brought me in to the machine. <laughs> um, I was I was really amazed with it, Tanner.
0: Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Um, yeah, it's you know it's um. Oh, go ahead.
1: Oh no no please go ahead.
0: Oh, I was just gonna say that that's one as well that uh, actually does have a cobra pin in it now, and I've uh, I took to a show a couple of years ago, so that one does function um like it actually should for the most part um. But it uh, just to describe the play feel a little bit as well. Um, so one of the things in it is that. I was interested in the really kind of esoteric themes you find in like 60s games and 50s games where like, you know, there's like Toledo, or like there's, you know, there are these games where the themes are just, you know, some generic idea. And then, you know, there's not a lot explained about it. And so I wanted to explore that a little bit with the theme of this one, but I wanted to integrate it with the play field more than is usually done on those games. So there's three sink holes on the play field where one is, you know, just a normal kick out hole towards the top. Um, there's a medium sized one. That's a pop bumper. That's in kind of a bowl shape that, um, looks cool, but in reality functions more or less like a normal pop bumper. It doesn't do anything, especially weird, but then towards the bottom third of the play field, there's a, uh, a big funnel. So kind of like the whirlpool and, uh, um, whitewater or something like that, but it's a big, you know, kind of funnel and then it has a uh, kick out at the bottom. So, you know, it gets down there and then spits it back out to the flippers. But, um, I wanted to explore having, you know, that kind of feature where it tied in with the theme and then tied in with the play field and did something a little weird, um, in relation to that.
1: That's awesome. Um so so yeah it, it, there's 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 just like like I said before it, it there's just something mesmerizing about and actually following how the ball will go into that sinkhole <laughs> and 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 actually envisioning it 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 was I I was like mm. 10 minutes went by as I looked at this thing um so so your next machine was sisyphus um yeah. why don't why don't you why don't you tell the listener about that
0: Yeah so that one is more of a pinball adjacent machine as I would describe it, you know, kind of like how Pitch and Bat and some of these things aren't, you know, exactly pinball machines but are still within the realm. So this one is, uh, similar to Ice Cold Beer where it's a bar that goes up the play field with ball balanced on it and, um, it, you know, follows that basic gameplay. But this one is, uh, like two and a half feet wide and nine feet tall. It's, um, pretty enormous, which makes it hard to move that I didn't initially think about when I built it, but makes it look neat in person. Um, But so this one, it's not like ice cold beer where there's a series of holes you're trying to get to individually. Instead it's uh, based on the Greek myth of Sisyphus, you know, a little bit of a theme going on um, where Sisyphus was a king who tried to cheat death and then was punished by having to roll a boulder up to a hill only for it to roll to the bottom of the hill. And, you know, he has to do that for all of time, similar to, you know, Prometheus having his liver eaten for all of time. And so in this game, you know, originally it was going to be a more normal pinball machine, or I even thought about doing like a vertical game, like a bonsai run. Um, But then I uh, discovered ice cold beer existed and it was kind of perfect because, you know, you have a mostly vertical surface and you're literally rolling a ball up it. So, you know, you're rolling a boulder up the mountain and so the playfield I came up with um, is a lot kind of snakier and thinner, and it kind of uh, goes to a triangular point where there's a hole at the very top. So instead of trying to get to specific points along this playfield, you're just trying to get it all the way to the very top. And then this game is actually two-sided. So once it gets to the top, it rolls to the other side of the machine, and you run, uh, run around, and you do that as many times as you want to. Um and the play, I'm mean the so um, the play is actually something I'm pretty proud on this game as well because there, I tried to design it where it wasn't necessarily super obvious, but there's a, like a super obvious main path both in the colors and kind of the actual area of uh, where you can go, but it kind of goes back and forth in the longest way possible, and then so along this there's different ways where you know. Um, if you're really good, you could do this super quickly just because there's a fairly direct path all the way from the bottom to the top versus, you know, it's going to take you a couple of minutes if you're doing, you know, the obvious path. So I tried to do some of those, uh, game design ideas where, um, it existed within what you could see, but it wasn't necessarily telling you how to interact with that. It was kind of for the player to discover as they were playing the game. Um, and I think it turned out pretty well. It's uh, right now it's in a similar situation to Prometheus where I really didn't know about things like stepper motors and a lot of the weird kind of physical stuff that goes along with ice cold beer when I made this. Um, so it functions and that's about the best I can maybe say for it right now. Um, so this is one where uh, I probably will put a, an actual fast system in it, but at some point I'm going to, you know, put an actual controller and an actual uh computer to run mission pinball just so it's not an especially complicated game but it's got a few little quirks that would really benefit from having something more complex controlling it so so Um, so let's go
1: under the play field or or inside the play field in 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 this case what are what are some of those changes you would make with 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 the fast system um to 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 make the game that that much better you talked about the stepper motors what what else
0: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, so this was another one where I tried to run it off of Arduino just because I was trying to run everything off of Arduinos when I was initially working on these, Um, except for the next game that we'll get to that uh, was what I bought my first fast set of hardware for. Um, But so, like, for this game, um, so for one thing, physically, it's not super precise or accurate in the way it's put together, just because an Ice Cold Beer... It's a belt on either side that's attached to the bar that, you know, can raise it up and down. And the way I had it laid out, I was doing everything by hand out of wood. Um, this was before I really got into 3D printing, which at this point, you know, my games are like half 3D printed. Um and so that's the first thing I used to do I would do is I would go and redesign the complete kind of system to actually have the player interact with the ball. Um, just to have things actually line up the way they should and be a lot more reliable and kind of efficient. Um, and then with that done, um, there's a lot of fun little tricks you can do in Mission Ball. no matter how simple the game is. So, like, you know, um, having an attract mode, for instance, is something that would be super fun, just because that's not something that affects the person playing the game, but it's just, you know, sitting there at some point, having, you know, the bar go up and down and do some kind of fun stuff on the play field to attract people over it. Like it's the sort of thing where pinball machines are kind of collections of details where none of the things individually matter that much. Uh, I mean, the game functioning and the layout being fun matter, obviously, but like all the little things like, you know, the artwork and the way artwork is on plastics and how that interacts with the rest of it and everything being kind of color matched and all these kind of little things that uh, um, come together to really sell the idea and the world that the game is trying to portray to you. And so something like an attract mode isn't that super important of a detail, but it contributes to the, you know, kind of entirety machine being something convincing and you know worthwhile to interact with so Um, i
1: i i really like that term tanner collection of details like i Mm. when you said that i feel like i can see pinball through a a glimpse a a a sliver through an artist's eye which Mm -hmm. i i am not i am not an artist (laughs) um and it's it's such a cool way of looking at it So that's Sisyphus. Um, Why don't we move on to your next machine and talk about Trashland. So sure.
0: Yeah. So Trashland um, is still a game I'm working on. It's one of the primary things I'm working on, except it's a weird situation where the one I made in grad school, I kind of refer to as Trashland 1.0, just because I took a lot of ideas from it and the theme uh, into the next version, but everything else is completely... Di- like, they're two different... It's like high-speed versus high-speed 2, where, you know, they've got a lot of the same features, but you wouldn't uh, call them the same game. Um But yeah, so Trashland 1 was kind of a weird game and that I wanted to make a square game, and I wanted to make a game called Trashland. It was kind of, you know... It, it started out, like... There's, you know, kind of top-down design where you have an idea for a theme and then you design based around that theme. And then there's bottom-up where, you know, you have idea for kind of the mechanics and some of the ideas and you build around that. Um, Yeah, so Trashland 1 was a game that I uh, made um, towards the end of the group of games I was making. They were all kind of around the same um, three or four-month period that I kind of started them all and was working on them all simultaneously. Um, But this one came towards the tail end, and it's still the one that I'm working on um, in some way, or at least I'm working on kind of a Trashland 2, just because the first Trashland had some things that I enjoyed about it and had some fun ideas, but there was a lot that needed to be redesigned. So I took the kind of theme and the ideas I liked from that game uh, and took them into the Trashland that I'm working on today that I've taken to uh, quite a few shows now. Um, so with Trashland, uh, one though, it kind of came from two different ideas where I wanted to make a square game and I wanted to make a game called Trashland. Um, no idea what the theme was beyond that, but just, you know, something about that name kind of made me think it'd be fun for a pinball machine.
1: Where where, um, where, 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 did, you know, what was your muse in finding Trashland? Like where, do you, do, do you have any origin story for where that came from or just, it kind of just jumped in your head one day?
0: It kind of just jumped in, as far as I remember, it kind of just jumped in my head where I was uh, uh, thinking about themes. And uh, this was a time where, you know, I was spending at least a couple hours every day on uh, the internet pinball database, just, you know, looking at games for inspiration and just kind of to learn what was out there. Just because before I started working on this project, um, I had played pinball a decent amount, but it wasn't something I really knew about. Um, either historically or just, you know, from a general experience of playing lots of games. Um, and so I spent a lot of time looking at games and somewhere at, you know, thinking about pinball at all hours of the day, both historically and in the games that I was making, it kind of, I don't know. It was usually ideas don't just appear to you as something that you're going to use, but this was one of the rare cases where that happened.
1: Gotcha. So you say that you wanted something that was a, a square game, but that's not the actual dimensions of the of the cabinet. That's actually more the the play field. Do you want to talk about that?
0: Right. So Trashland one point is actually pretty close to uh, square. The play field was, I believe, twenty seven by twenty-seven inches or something like that. Um, so it was an ultra wide body, similar to like the Atari games. Um, or you know some of those earlier wide bodies, but then since it was square, it was super short in comparison. Um, and then the cabinet, um, it's kind of interesting on that version, just because it came at a time where, uh, in Buffalo, uh, Buffalo, New York there, there's a place called pocket here. That's ac- actually co-owned by David fix of American pinball, mm-hmm. which I did not know at the time. Um, but they have, I think 90 games there or something like that. they have, a real nice collection. Um, But they have a Centaur 2, which was one of the three games that were made with uh, leftover hyperball cabinets. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really enjoyed the Centaur 2 specifically because it had the really nice red glowing displays, but then it was behind a kind of uh, dark smoky panel. So you wouldn't see the displays if they weren't on. And that was something I really enjoyed the effect of for that game. So I designed the Trashland 1 cabinet In a similar way to those uh, Hyperball cabinets where it had a weird kind of tiered design where the head didn't have anything in it. It was just the uh, back glass and then the actual display was lower down in the cabinet. Um, And that was something I abandoned with the uh, 2.0 version, but it's something where I still appreciate those hyperball uh, ga- cabinet games of uh eight ball deluxe centaur two and uh mr and mrs pac-man but yeah um, t- 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 t-
1: t- t- yeah. um for those that, that might not know the history do you want to quickly talk about what what like why those are weird and how what their connection is to hyperball
0: yeah so uh hyperball was i think 1987 i forget the exact year but it was a steve ritchie designed game at williams where it wasn't a pinball game, but it used pinballs. So it was kind of pinball adjacent. Um, but it used kind of a machine gun turret where you could aim it with a handle and then it would shoot a ball as many times as you could push a button. And the gameplay was kind of like Space Invaders, where you were trying to, you know, stop these advancing targets. Um, and uh, as far as I know, Williams expected it to do really well, but it did not because it's not very good. And so they had a ton of these funky cabinets that they made for the game left over, where the actual main body of the cabinet was the same as a uh, regular pinball cabinet, but then the head was this weird, like, imagine two boxes stacked on top of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're super funky, but they had a bunch of them left over. So they did runs of uh, Eight Ball Deluxe Centaur and uh, Mr. and Mrs. Pac Man. To specifically use up those cabinets so that's why you know you find your regular centaurs and then you find your centaur twos where um i think they're super neat although it's just a shame you don't get the actual full back glass you get on a normal game um but they were part of you know the group of games i was interested in then that were you know funky games for one reason or another and those were normal games in a funky cabinet, which isn't as exciting as some of the other weirder stuff around. But uh I thought it was kinda neat then and still think it's kinda neat.
1: So you took you took a wide and short you, you created a wide and short game with Trashland one. What was your yeah. theory on creating those 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 properties?
0: Yeah, so that was um again the initial genesis was that it was a square game. And so as part of that, just when I was initially thinking it through um I so the you have like say Baby Pac Man and Ga- Granny and the Gators and whatnot that are a kind of standard width that are square games. But at least at the time I was working on that one, I didn't think you could do a square game in a normal form fa- or a normal width just because it'd be way too short. Um and so I, I uh widened it and then I was, you know, thinking about it and I wasn't fully sure how wide to go, so I kept going until I had kind of a design that I thought would work all right. Um, and that ended up being super wide, just so that I had a little bit of depth to play with. Um, but then there was the problem that it was so wide that uh, you couldn't just have sort of two flippers to uh, you know interact with all that space. So I spent a lot of time playing with the actual... Uh, lower third layout which isn't exactly a lower third in the way that you have with a standard game but I ended up uh, doing a design where you do have two flippers that are the normal like width and orientation of an italian bottom but then to the uh, left of the left flipper there's a pop bumper and then above that there's a, a steep angle um, third flipper, kind of like you have on say high speed or some of these other games where you have an upper flipper at a fairly steep angle, but it's all kind of condensed and squished into the uh kind of main area of interaction. And the thought about that was that uh, I'm not a big fan of scissor flippers, um, there's something I've come to appreciate a little more over time, but I just uh, I don't know, to me, they're in a weird space where. They're used in wide body games to take up that additional space. Um, but I don't feel like they add much to the actual experience of playing the game other than being frustrating when you know you lose your ball between two of the flippers or something like that. Tanner, and for so the listener I want that
1: doesn't know. Could you tell them what a what a what a, 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 a scissor flipper is?
0: Yeah. So a scissor flipper is an arrangement that was used in both kind of standard width games and wide bodies where it's a flipper. And then immediately next to that, there's a flipper. So when they're down, there's a straight, um, there's not quite a straight line, but the flippers are kind of end to end. And so they flip at the same time. And so because of that, there's a gap between the lower flipper and the upper flipper. Um, and there, I mean, there's a ton of games that use them, but, uh, they're not something I'm particularly fond of. Um, except I did play a Zachariah game recently, which Zachariah is a Italian manufacturer. You don't see over here a lot, but they had, uh, oh, I can't remember the game, but they had scissor flippers, but the upper scissor flipper had a custom piece of plastic so that when they were both up, it actually blocked that gap. Oh, okay. so we had the two flippers, but you couldn't lose the ball between the two flippers. um, but yeah, so there's something I find that... I mean, there's an element of skill in not losing the ball between the two scissor flippers. Um, but it's a situation where like you can have things that require skill that aren't fun, like even if you're skilled at doing them. And at least in my opinion, scissor flippers are a case like that, where like knowing how to interact with scissor flippers is a certain skill and something that helps you be good at games. But it's not a skill that you know is fun to get to or fun to take advantage of. It's more of a necessity of that design than you know something that you want to interact with. Right. Right. Um, so
1: yeah. So 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 that's that's Trashland 1.0. And so talk about how Trashland 2.0 comes to be and what's what's special about it.
0: Yeah. So Trashland 2.0 um, was one where. Um, originally I was just going to do say like a new play field for the Trashland 1.0 to fix some of the issues it had and kind of get it working better. Um, and it was the sort of thing that the more I thought it through and the more I was doing kind of design work with that to get to a next version, the more I realized I was just trying to work around things that existed that didn't work properly with, you know, the cabinet and the way that things, you know, were set up and, it was a lot of fixes to issues that uh to the point where, you know, what's a good an- analogy. Like it was just, I was trying to fix problems that couldn't be solved with the way it was. So eventually I decided to do a whole new cabinet that was, you know, different dimensions and start over from scratch just to be able to really do it correct and have it be the way that I wanted it to be. And so with the, uh Second version, it ended up being slightly wider, actually. It's 29 inches, which is the widest it can uh, be to get through a standard door, as you mentioned earlier. Um, and it's actually a little bit deeper. It's, I think, 34 inches or maybe 35 inches deep. So it's still um, quite a bit shorter than a normal game, but it's a little bit more of a rectangular game, just to let it have a little bit of breathing room, like especially in the middle, because it's a packed game. Um, but if it were squished even further, there would just be no space between like flipping the ball and having the ball hit something and being able to interact with it and react and all that sort of things. So I kind of, uh, stretched the game out a little bit just to make it a little easier. Um, and then again, it was going to be the sort of thing where it wasn't going to be an especially huge rework with that, but there was kind of a fortunate situation where, uh, This was after I finished my grad program, so I didn't have access to the um, equipment I had there at the time. Uh, Instead, I was at a makerspace back here in Michigan that I've been a member of for a long time. And the CNC they had um, wasn't big enough to do what I needed, but they were getting a 4x8 CNC. So I was waiting for this thing to, you know, be set up and be usable. And the more time that went on, the more I kept thinking of, you know things I wanted to change and things I wanted to add to this new version. So like the first version had kind of a pretty standard, uh, play field with a small upper play field. And that was kind of what there was. And the more time went on, the more I was like, okay, how do I utilize the space that I have in this game, the best of what it can do? And, you know, how do I do kind of weird, cool things? So it went from being, you know, a small upper play field and kind of a normal main play field to having a bigger upper play field and then to having this kind of really tall backboard that had a small vertical section, similar to something like Bonsai run to uh, the, it's a little hard to describe without seeing a picture, but the way the apron is, there's like a good, I don't know, fifth of the play field in the bottom left that's just, you know, taken up by the apron just to facilitate the rest of the game working and where that would have been uh, dead space otherwise, I was like, hey, you know, why don't I put a mini playfield under the playfield that you can see through the apron? Um, and then I was like, you know, why ca- how can't you go between all three playfields continuously without interacting with the main playfield? And it kind of, this this isn't always a good thing with a project, but at least, you know, it stayed in the theoretical law around, uh, the theoretical realm long enough between me wanting to redo the previous version to actually being able to do it that a lot of these uh, design decisions happen that wouldn't have happened if it didn't have the time to kind of you know mature and sit around there at the back of the mind um so by the time i actually got around to cutting the new version of the game. It had taken on a completely new life where it was the same theme. And I kept the things I liked about the 1.0 version, but it just, you know, kind of gained so much and morphed into this thing that was uh, a lot more special and a lot more interesting, I think.
1: Yeah. Tanner, you mentioned um Bonsai Run and it's a, obviously a really good analogy. There's a couple mm-hmm. other machines. Um where else did you take inspiration from as you as you built these multiple play fields and and how they connected?
0: Yeah, so um, Bonsai runs the wa- game that it takes the most directly from, I think. Um, but there are a lot of other games that, you know, um, inform the decisions that I made. So one uh, that's interesting that actually didn't inform it a lot is people always think this game um, is a lot like Pinball Circus, um, which granted i a hundred percent understand why people look at this and then they're like oh it's like the pinball circus um but the game that this one's actually a lot more like i think is haunted house where um it's not like it looks a lot more vertical and kind of oppressive and you move around which is what the pinball circus does super well um but the thing i really wanted with this game was for you to be able to go to all the mini play fields you know multiple times throughout even like a quick game just because there's kind of an issue i think sometimes where when a game has a mini play field or you know some kind of really special feature that you like want to interact with but then it's you know difficult to do so so you don't get to every game like i think like about black hole for instance where i have entire games on black hole sometimes where i don't ever get to go to the lower play field which you know feels bad as a player when that happens yeah and you're so you're, wanna,
1: you're you're absolutely yeah. spot on um black, black like every time i play play black hole and i can't get to that lower play field i'm like i you know do i want to dump another quarter in here or go play something else like I'm, yeah. I'm totally with you
0: yeah well it's like if you're gonna have a cool thing in the game but then not have it do that cool thing every game like that's just a weird kind of uh friction point where as a player, it makes them maybe not want to interact with it more. It kind of turns them off from, um, doing something with that game. And so in a Haunted House, conversely, you know, the entire time you're playing that game, you're going to the upper play field, you're going to the lower play field, you're back on the main play field, you're going between the lower and the upper, right. and you're just moving all around that entire machine the entire time you're playing it every single game, And so that was something with this game that both through the code and then uh, I recently did a um, new play field for this game that changed some things pretty significantly from the first version. But I've tried to facilitate a similar sort of thing that um, the point of the game is to go between all the different places on the game and then your ability to do so um, is facilitated by the game. So like, for instance, one thing I changed with the new uh, version versus the... uh, um, the earlier one was that the game starts by launching the ball and it goes to a vertical up kicker at the back right of the game. And then in the uh, earlier version, that vertical up kicker could either feed it to the vertical portion of the game or it would feed it back to the right flipper. There was a diverter mechanism associated and it was um, it didn't work that great. And so when I was redesigning the play field, I was uh, trying to figure out an easier way to do that diverter and i just had the it occurred to me that that wasn't something that like there was no reason to be able to need to have that capability to divert the ball one way or another, like when you started the game, or if you make that shot that goes to that vertical up kicker, it's going to go to that vertical play field. Cause that's, what's the most fun, right? Like, everyone tries the uh, game and it starts off in that vertical section. And that's like one of the most fun parts about it is you get to do this thing. That's, you know, on one other game, that's really weird and really cool. And it's hard to get used to. So having such easy access to it allows you to build that kind of familiarity. Um, And so as I've kind of worked through this game, I've tried to figure out those points where I was trying to do something and the things that didn't facilitate the fun of the game, I dropped. Which uh, with this game, it's a lot more meant to be like a commercial game versus the other games like Sinkhole or Prometheus are a lot more art games in the sense that they're, you know, full games that you can play, but you play them like once, have the full experience, and you don't necessarily play it again. Whereas Trashland, I wanted to have it be more like a commercial game, where there was a deeper experience and a lot of replay value there to explore through the game.
1: Yeah. And, and, it, you know, you, you talk about that, the, the ball launch going to the back area and, and, and mm-hmm. out onto the vertical, Um, you know, I, I had noticed that in one of the video clips that you put, and it, it not only creates a magic moment that you end up on the vertical play field, but mm-hmm. also there's kind of a surprise that you're going to end up on the vertical play field. And, you know, you, you have to, the very first time you do it, you're not necessarily flipping the ball's going to come back down. But the second mm-hmm. time, you're going to know to hold that flipper up when the ball mm-hmm. when the ball's being ejected. And so, I I, I I may have given away the surprise to to, to all the listeners. Um, mm-hmm. Now, you, you you mentioned earlier about 3D printing. Do you want to talk about leveraging 3D printing and your your skill set with 3D printing as this this, sure. this version two came together?
0: Yeah. So it's the sort of thing where um, I've known how to 3D print since undergrad but i've only like the time between when i learned how to 3d print and then um when i started 3d printing for trashland 2.0 like a year and a half or 2 years ago like i printed you know 10 things or less like i it was something i knew how to do and kind of had an idea of but it wasn't something i knew how to leverage into something useful so like once in a while i would use it um But it wasn't something I kind of, like, it's like if you have a hammer, but you don't know how to hit nails with it. Um, (laughs) And so (laughs) it was something that theoretically was there, but I just never used. But then when I was redoing Trashland, um, there was a weird bracket I needed for something putting it uh, together. And so there were uh, 3D printers at the Makerspace that uh, I mentioned. And so I 3D printed this piece and it worked great. And so then uh when uh, another weird piece came up I 3D printed it and it kind of uh compounded where I would just 3D print more and more things just because um especially like with a uh, more standard game there's not as much of a need although I would still use a ton of 3D printing um but especially with this Trashland 2.0 there were just so many weird things and weird little ramps and brackets and little pieces that um it just made more and more sense to 3d print everything. And so at this point, um, there's still things I'll do manually or still things I'll do in other ways, but like there's so much that I'll just 3d print just because it's so easy to make a model and then iterate on it. And then to, you know, have it be the super specific custom solution that's going to function perfectly versus, you know, doing something manually or doing something another way. Um, so yeah it's just you know i uh so i have two 3d printers at my home at this point and uh they're both from elegoo and uh not an advertisement but they're super cheap and they work super well so it's like 3d printing also used to be a lot more expensive i feel like so that was maybe part of why i didn't do it as much but like one of my printers cost me a 100 bucks and i've used it basically every day since i got it and still functions perfectly so it's uh similar to a lot of things with custom uh, pinball where the access to some of these tools exists so much easier that you know um i don't think especially for a one-off game there's any reason not to 3d print a bunch of it
1: yeah and and you know you, you you've done a couple interesting things like i noticed you had a loop that you shoot it's like a half a half a loop and the ball yeah. actually comes flying back because um, it goes <laughs> up the loop and comes back towards yeah. the flippers which was which is a cool cool 3d printed part um yeah. you, you've also done some innovative um things like you've got it and, and it's not like uh, uh it's not like it's the first time it's been done but you did put a bumper instead of a left sling on trash mm-hmm. line Two. um you know, uh, and then um, you're, you know, it's kind of like Spanish eyes or Rick and Morty, Um, you know, you're, you're bringing some definite different style to, to pinball, which is awesome. And, and bringing back some concepts that may have, you know, been tried, didn't work perfectly and abandoned where instead some refinement might've, might've actually made them better. Um, Mm -hmm. So, so I wanted to ask you, um, do you, do you feel that there are, designers currently working in pinball that you feel are pushing the envelope or designers that did push the envelope um in 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 in, in different ways or those those that you're taking inspiration from
0: yeah so um yeah i think for just a second about how to answer that because there's like all of the kind of legacy quote unquote designers that still you know make games like pat lawler steve Ritchie, or you know all the people still working I admired a ton. Like Pat Lawler might be my favorite designer. He He's up there. Um, other things, notwithstanding, John Trudeau is also a uh, designer whose yeah, design work I admire a lot. I but, admire
1: um, his design work as well. So let we, we um, can just leave it there.
0: <laughs> but like, cause like the, the guys who have been doing it forever, they're good at what they do. They make good and interesting games. Um, but I do think we're at a point where some of them um, don't necessarily push the envelope, like you mentioned, maybe as much as they did with earlier games. And so I think um, a lot of the like the newer guys make really fascinating games. Like Jack Danger obviously made an incredible game with Foo Fighters, which, you know, the thing I appreciate the most about that game is how there are no pop bumpers in it. Um, I don't hate pop bumpers but i also think that there's you know pretty specific use cases for them and they're maybe applied a little bit too liberally um in designs or like you know scott denisi also is someone who makes really fantastic games um i haven't gotten to try final resistance yet but i really look forward to playing that one at some point
1: yeah i've got a final resistance um, on 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 the way i'm on on the list so it should be manufactured yeah. in august or september so i'm yeah i'm super excited for it
0: yeah, no, that one looks great. And then I would honestly say that uh, this is a little bit cliche to say, maybe, but the homebrew community is the one that I take a lot of inspiration from 100%. just because I think there's a I mean, obviously that's a big part of the point of this podcast. But there's a lot of innovation within Homebrew of people, you know, Whether it's because, you know, they're naive about certain things or because they want to do something weird that happened in one game they really like, or like, there's a lot of innovation in homebrew and a lot of, you know, um, weird designs that you don't necessarily see from the, uh, manufacturers that I find really inspiring and I mean, obviously, that's the case with people like, you know, Ryan McQuaid or uh, Mark Seiden, where they made really fantastic kind of professional quality games that also happened to do weird things because they were homebrew games. Um, and so um, I'm not a part of the uh, Pin Pindev um, Slack, but I'm on the Fast Slack community, and that's... Uh, one that I go to all the time, just to you know talk ideas through or you know talk about someone's idea else's ideas with them. And so that uh, kind of community is one that gives me a lot of inspirations I design games. Yeah,
1: I, I I love what you said, and I I very much you know a, a, a agree with your assessment. Um, the one other one that I would I would add on there, I'm not saying you you need to, is I feel that Dennis Nordman has really been trying to push cabinet design and push innovation, even if it's you know gimmicky or mm. you know interesting. Um, it's it, you know and, and 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 what he pulled off recently. Um, I know he's yeah, I love Galactic Tank Four. So
0: I yeah, I completely agree there
1: yeah um, um so so uh it, where can folks go to play any of your machines or will they be at at shows coming up
0: yeah so the next show i'll 100 percent be at is uh expo this year um i'll have Trashland there and i might have uh prometheus or sinkhole as well if i have a little bit of time to uh get those put together and then uh I have a secret project that's been the main thing I've Ooh. actually been working on for eight or nine months. That's going to make its debut at Expo this year. So that's a project I can't say anything about yet, but one I'm really excited for people to play.
1: Tanner, I'll be at Expo, and I look I look very much forward to to to, to seeing the secret project as well as anything else you bring mm-hmm. and meeting you in person. So, um, what what advice would you have for? an up and coming maker, innovator who, you know, wants to get their feet wet, doesn't know where to start. Like what, what advice would you give them?
0: Yeah, I would. Um, oh, that's a tough question. It's the sort of thing where I would th- th- uh, say, take the thing that you're good at and then start with that. So whether that's, you know, doing something physically or whether that's doing something through software and kind of start a project through what you're comfortable with. And then you can expand outwards into the things you're less comfortable with as they're needed. I think if you tried to start sometimes with, you know, um, the part you find really hard, you're going to get discouraged a lot easier and give up, you know, a lot quicker than you would if you start with something you're comfortable with and then, you know, expand out in ways that you can handle while still having that core. Um, so it, it's gonna be a little bit different for everyone just because these are such kind of massive complex projects. But uh I would say that's kind of the way I would recommend people start if they want to.
1: Yeah, Tanner, I think that's that that's awesome advice. And you know, for 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 you starting on the artistic side, on the fine arts side, mm-hmm. on the woodworking, which were the things that you knew, and then picking up Arduino and then moving to Cobra Pin and then moving to Fast, like that is an amazing journey. And yeah. it's 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 absolutely an honor having you on the show. Um, the, the stuff you do is like, it belongs, it belongs in a museum and it belongs to be played <laughs> in a museum and, and and appreciated by, 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 by folks. And I cannot wait to see them at expo. Whatever oh, I,
0: I appreciate that. Th- so there's this guy uh, named Tim Hunkin, who's an artist who he's, uh, based in the UK, but he makes these really incredible electromechanical arcade machines where they're like, um, if you think about like the ones where you like put a quarter in and then there's a physical, like seat, like automatons, uh-huh. um, but they're actual games, but he has this place in London called novelty automation. That's uh, an arcade he owns. That's entirely populated with games he's made. And that is my dream one day to have, you know, something similar to that. So
1: that, that is awesome. Well, well, at Tanner, some point. yeah, no, I, I, I hope you make it that that would, that, that would be awesome. And, <laughs> And, and the type of stuff you're creating, I have no doubt you could, you could have you very easily have people coming in to, mm. to, to play and check it out. Listen, Tanner, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I look forward to meeting you at expo. And I, 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 I am amazed and humbled by just the quality of work that you do and the way that you, you took the time to explain it. So thank you.
0: Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you for having me on. It was a ton of fun to talk.
1: Awesome. Right.
0: Thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for listening,
1: and I can't wait to see what you make.